You guys have the fan section. If, if at any point I start to swoon, just do one of these. So we, turn with me, if you have a Bible, I really, thank you. Grab a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 8. That's where we're going to be camping out today. Um, last week, we began, Jesus traveled into Jerusalem and he began this interaction in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. And at that one, he very specifically kind of took one of their symbols, this symbol of the water ceremony, and he attributed it to himself. In the same way that they were grabbing water and taking it up to the altar and pouring it as a way of just saying, God, would your blessing flow upon Jerusalem and upon your people? He was saying, listen, I am the true source of water, the water of life. And anyone who comes to me, streams of living water will be flowing from them. And he was talking about the Holy Spirit there, but he was very clearly kind of using that symbolism to point to himself. I just love the way that God is a God of props and he uses things to help people who need imagery to get it. Well, some people began to have faith in him. He really started dividing the crowds that he was interacting with because some people were like, maybe this is the Messiah we've been waiting for. Maybe this is our guy. But then others began to side with the religious establishment who had already decided in their hearts, this Jesus guy is not the Messiah we've been waiting for. He doesn't match what we've expected. So their arms are crossed and they're just looking for any and every way to be able to reject Jesus. And anytime somebody begins to speak up about some bit of faith that they may be having in him, they just slap them down as well and they reject them. Are you so silly, so daft as to think that this could be the Messiah? And that's the kind of milieu going on. And now we come to John chapter 8. And turn with me if you're not already there. I don't know about your Bibles, but in my Bible I have this interesting little section between chapter 7 and chapter 8 that says the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John chapter 753 through 811. A few manuscripts include these verses and then they give some examples of where this section shows up in both John and in Luke. You guys have that? For some of your Bibles, it may also have these next 12 verses or so in italics. Let me explain what's going on here before we dive in. A lot of times we approach the Bible as something that simply fell from heaven, complete in Times New Roman font, like six point font. So you need the magnifying glass to read it we, on pages so thin that if you highlight one side, it bleeds through and highlights a verse on the other side, whether it's a good one or not. Um, they're all good. I'm sorry. That was a ridiculous thing to say. I've sometimes been amazed at like what I've highlighted on the other side of the pages. I'm doing this. And I'm like, that's brilliant. Um, and, and then, of course, it has to I always think that, well, yeah, God totally bound this thing in some faux leather pleather thingy. You know, we think that the Bible just dropped out of heaven. But the reality is the Bible is made up of 66 books that were written by different authors, authors over hundreds and hundreds of years. And some of these books talk about the history of Israel the ways of God's interaction with his people. Some of these books were written by prophets speaking specifically into a specific situation in Israel's history, speaking the words of God, calling them out and saying, it's time for you to step up. It's time for you to turn back because you have been doing this by your own strength or you have been turning your back on the God who saved you. Then we get into the New Testament and we have four autobiographies, I'm sorry, not auto. We have four biographies of Jesus's life written by four different guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the majority of the New Testament are made up of letters, letters written by P 
people who are speaking to other Christ followers in the midst of persecution after persecution, helping them understand what does it look like to follow a crucified Christ? What does it look like to give your heart totally to him? How now shall we live? And prior to this Bible being kind of brought together, it took several hundred years before the Bible was ever fully kind of integrated together and say, these are the actual books in the order that we're going to have them, and now we can start binding them together. Prior to that, what they were were letters and scrolls that were passed from one church to the next, and the church would get it, and they would stand up and say, this is the new letter that we got from Paul this week. Let's read what he has to say, and they would read it. And then somebody who had the ability to write would then take that letter and he would maybe jot it down by hand onto another hide or scroll or something so that they could have a copy of it. And then they would pass that letter to the next group and the next group. And this happened for years and years and years. Which makes it difficult when scholars today try to sit down and say, we want to make a new translation or we want to make a new copy of the Bible because we don't have any of those original manuscripts. They were passed and probably wore out. Maybe they got lost. Maybe they were burned in a fire. Who knows what happened to them? But the original manuscripts have been lost and all we have are copies, which might cause many of us to pause and go, well, then how can I know that this is trustworthy? How can I know that this is actually what was written originally? So toward that end, what I want to do is I want to give you an example. Thank you for whoever brought me water. That was sweet. I love you, Cheryl. You're a good woman. Um, Let me give you an example of a couple of other ancient texts that we have that even today we consider to be very authoritative. Can we throw that slide up there? Okay, so what we're going to have is I have a, a, a work... Then I have the years between the original writing of it and the, the earliest known manuscripts that we have. And then finally, the number of manuscripts. So first off, Plato's Republic. I had to study this as a freshman in college. Are you guys excited that you're going to get to study this in college? Plato's Republic. The years between it being written. What was that? Was that like, uh, you don't even know what you're missing. The years between it being written and the earliest known manuscript, 12 centuries, 1,200 years between when Plato wrote the Republic and the earliest known manuscript. And of that, we only have seven known manuscripts. So it's very difficult to cross-reference them and go, okay, how has this changed between these copies? Like, did this person misspell this or change this idea? We don't have a whole lot of like a pool of resources to draw from to go, okay, how, you know, uh, how similar is this across the board? Second one is Caesar's Gallic Wars, okay? These are Caesar's own biography of, of his experiences during those wars. The years between when he wrote it and the earliest known manuscript is a thousand years, ten centuries between when he wrote it and the earliest known manuscript that we have a lot of time for some copying errors to to seep in. And of that, we only have ten copies of those ancient manuscripts to pull from and go, okay, did they get messed up in any way, shape, or form? Did somebody insert ideas into this? Homer's Iliad. Okay, we all have read Homer. We have the Iliad and the Odyssey. Of Homer's Iliad, we have about 500 years between when he wrote it and the earliest known manuscript, so a much smaller window. We also have 643 copies of this. So now, 
scholars are able to take them and go, okay, how much of a change has taken place between the first known copy that we have and all of the other ones? And they found that about 95% of the text stays uniform throughout all those copies. There's about 5% copying error going on in there. Make sense? I'm just giving you a foundation for some other ancient texts to get an idea of how scholars today have to put these things together since we don't have the original manuscripts. Now let's look at the New Testament. How much support do we have for the New Testament? The New Testament, it is less than 100 years between the original writing and the earliest known manuscript. The earliest known manuscript is about 130 A.D., which means that if Jesus died around 30 A.D., and then in the first 50 years of Jesus' life, or I'm sorry, after Jesus died and resurrected, it was about 50 years in between there that a lot of those letters in the New Testament were written. If 130 A.D. is the earliest known manuscript, that means it could only be as little as 50 years between the original writing and the earliest known manuscript. Very little time for errors to kind of creep in there. And we actually have 5,600 copies of the New Testament in Greek. Now, if we were to expand that to other regions and other languages that it was translated into, that number swells to 24,000 manuscripts. That gives scholars a tremendous amount of ability to go, okay, how much change has crept in from the earliest known manuscripts to some of the later ones, from one language to another, how much of this was changed? And what they found is that 99.5% of the the scripture never fluctuates at all. And of that 0.5% or that half a percentage point of change, there is not a single discrepancy when it comes to a central theme of Christianity. In other words, Jesus dying, Jesus resurrecting, Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, none of those things are ever in question throughout this. Which means that the Bible that we hold in our hands is the single most accurate, single most um, supported, well-documented ancient text in all of history. We have more support for the the validity of this book, at least in terms of what it was originally written to be. The words on the pages are as close to what the original authors intended it to be as any ancient text that we have records for. Does that make sense? I love this stuff. I know that some of you guys are going, okay, I'm about to fall asleep, so get on to the actual scripture. I will. But there's a tremendous amount of documented evidence to support the truthfulness of the, of the text that we hold in our hands. Now, why does this matter for us today? Why am I going over this? Because when we get to John chapter 8, suddenly we're, we are presented with something that does not pass muster when it comes to translation. Here's what I mean. Those earliest manuscripts, the oldest ones that we have, do not contain John chapter 753 through 811. It doesn't, it doesn't show up in many of the manuscripts until about three or four hundred years after the original writings, which suggests that this passage was never actually intended to be part of John's gospel. It also suggests, because as you get into there, some of the language being used doesn't sound a whole lot like John. There are words that are used here that are not used anywhere else in John's gospel. Scholars believe that this was not actually written by John. Now, On the flip side, we do know that as early as maybe a hundred years after Jesus' death, there were um, 
writers who actually referenced this passage or referenced this story, which means that people were talking about it. It was actually a story that people talked about Jesus. And so what, what we, they suspect happened is that this was a story that people knew about Jesus. It actually happened. Eyewitnesses talked about it, but it never made it into any of the four Gospels. And so when things were getting to be time for canonization, they said, wait a minute, we can't lose this story. Well, where are we going to put it? Ah, shove it in there. And so they shoved it here. Some of them shoved it after at the very end of John. Some of them even shoved it into the book of Luke instead. Why does this matter? Because I'm going to take the, the kind of approach that many scholars and theologians do, which is to say, I don't think that John intended for this to be right here in his gospel. It actually does some damage to the flow of his story. At the same time, I do think that it tells us a lot about Jesus. And I do think that it is an authentic story of who Jesus was. One of the major characteristics that make me feel comfortable at least even reading this is the fact that it does not in any way contradict the heart that we see of Jesus portrayed through any of the other Gospels. This stays faithful to who we know Jesus to be. So, did John write this? I don't know. Was this a part of his original Gospel? It doesn't seem like that when you look at the original manuscripts, or at least the oldest ones that we have. Is this a valuable text for helping us understand our Lord and Savior and our Father's heart? Absolutely. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to read this, but I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it because I want to get to the other part of the gospel as well. And then we'll come back to it and we'll just talk about a couple of things that this reveals. Make sense? All right, let's dive in. Chapter 8. They all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Now the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. So this isn't just we heard that this woman committed adultery. We have caught this woman in the act, which is interesting because she can't be in the act by herself. And yet there's only one person there, which means that they have let the other person go. Interesting. But In reality, it doesn't seem like the Pharisees are all that concerned about whether or not this woman is guilty or what her conviction is going to be. What they're more interested in doing is tripping Jesus up. They're more focused on discrediting Jesus in some way, and we learn that as we keep reading. Because in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? So they asked Jesus, what do you think we should do with her? Verse 6, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. The focus is not this woman. The focus was, how can we discredit Jesus? How can we get him to say something that we can then go, this man doesn't even respect the law of Moses, he undermines it, and we should reject him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let anyone of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. He doesn't address whether or not this woman deserves death. He doesn't address the legal basis they have for accusing her. Instead, he places the focus, rather than the focus being on her, he shifts the focus onto them themselves and say, okay, that's fine. Whoever of you is without sin, you throw the stone first. And I love, I love how they respond. Verse 9, At this, those who heard began to drop their stones and walk away one at a time. The older ones first. 
we're more aware of our, our stuff, I guess. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And then Jesus stood up again and asked her, woman, and when he says woman, it is not a derogatory term. It's not, it's not meant as disrespect. In fact, he calls his own mother woman. So in that day and age, it was a term of respect. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Well, then neither do I condemn you. Because if there was anyone in that crowd who had a right to pick up a stone and throw it at her, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Jesus is the only one there who had the legal right, according to his suggestion, to actually pick it up. And he chooses compassion as well. Well, then neither do I condemn you. But he also doesn't condone her actions. He doesn't just say, oh, it doesn't matter. He addresses it, but not in a heavy-handed way. He's not being punitive in any way. He goes on to say, now go and leave your life of sin. And he's grace-filled and gentle and kind. And now we jump back into, at least in my passage, I go from italics back into a regular font, which suggests that this now is where we pick up on the story as the, the original gospel was intended to be. And what I want to suggest as we're reading this is that if this portion that we just read, which is a wonderful story, if this were removed, what we'll find is that the conversation that Jesus is going to engage in now is a continuation of the conversation that was taking place in John chapter 7 during the festival of tabernacles. And you remember at that festival, Jesus had stood up in the temple courts while they were you know, doing this water ceremony and says, listen, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So he's already taken one illustration from the festival of tabernacles and applied it to himself. And now he does it a second time. Because during the festival of tabernacles, one of the things that they did is that light was another theme throughout this festival. And in the very first night of this festival, they would pull out these four gigantic candelabras. These things were many, many, like some, some uh, people have suggested they were as tall as like 70 feet high. Massive golden candelabras with these big bowls and guys with buckets that carried like 10 gallons of oil would have to climb ladders and dump the buckets of oil into these massive bowls and they would light them up. And these things would cast light everywhere in Jerusalem to remind the people of God's Shekinah glory that used to dwell in the temple and give light everywhere. It was also a reminder of the way that God led the people in a pillar of fire as he led them through the wilderness and on the way to the, the promised land. It was also, if we know Revelation, it's a promise of, of the day when God and Jesus will reside with us in the new Jerusalem. They will be the source of light. We won't even need the sun because the light will emanate from them, their Shekinah glory. All of these things are wrapped up in the imagery of this light. And this took place in one of the outer courts in the temple. Well, if you jump down to verse 20 for just a moment of, of John chapter 8, we read that Jesus spoke these words that we're about to read in just a moment while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Anyone want to guess what they also placed in that area? Those big, massive candelabras stood right there as well. And so Jesus gets up in the temple courts in the very same area, could have been like in the shadow of these massive candelabras that have now burned out. All the oil has been spent. It's the end of the, the festival of tabernacles, not the beginning. And he stands in the shadows of these things. And in verse 12, he states, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. A second time, he takes a symbol that is tied with this festival and he points to himself and says, I bring this to completion. You guys have been waiting for God's presence. You guys have been waiting for God's blessing. You have been waiting for the truth of God to enter into your life and give you direction. Guess what? I'm the source of that light. You don't have to walk in darkness anymore. Look to me. But the Pharisees go right back to their their caustic undermining of Jesus' message in verse 13. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Because in a court of law... Jewish custom, a person could never testify on their own behalf. You always had to have at least one other witness. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards, but I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. Well, I am one who testifies for myself, and the other witness is the Father who sent me. Well, they asked him, well, where's your Father? You don't, know my, you don't know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away and you're going to look for me, but you're going to die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. Do you guys remember him saying that last week in the passage that we looked at? And then last week in in chapter seven, when he suggested that he was going to go somewhere they couldn't follow, they said, well, maybe he's going to go to the area with the Gentiles. Maybe he's going to go teach them and we don't interact with those Gentiles. So, you know, maybe that's where he's headed. Now they have a different interpretation. Verse 22, this made the Jews ask, well, is he going to kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? Ironically, Jesus was walking intentionally towards his own death. But that was not his final destination. Death was simply one step towards his returning back to the Father, back to heaven, after he had overcome sin and death. And he's saying, if you continue in your hardened hearts, if you continue to reject the truth that I hold out, if you continue to walk away from the light that I offer, if you continue to refuse to drink from the water of the Holy Spirit that I'm going to offer you, then you will die in your sins. And I'm sorry, but you will not spend eternity with the Father as you intend or as you you desire. So the Jews were asking, will he kill himself? Is this why he says, where you go, I can't come? Verse 23, but he continued, you are from below. And I'm from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. And if you don't believe that I am he, then you indeed will die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus responded. I have much more to say in judgment of you. But he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They didn't understand what he was telling them about the father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, the way that Jesus refers to himself, because Messiah was way too politically packed a a term. And so he refers to himself as the son of man, which the prophet um, Daniel 
saw, saw one like the Son of Man coming, glowing in light from the throne room of God. And so Jesus ties onto that because it didn't have a whole lot of political baggage with it, and he calls himself that. When you see the Son of Man lifted up, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. And so to those Jews who believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, if you do what I say, if you obey my commands, you are really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you obey my teaching, it's not enough to simply say, I believe in you, Jesus. Not enough to simply pay lip service. If your lives begin to be shaped by your belief. If I say, I believe this chair will hold me up and yet I'm not willing to actually put my weight on the chair, you might consider my my statement to be suspect. But if I say, I believe this chair will hold me up, I show it, I prove it through sitting down in it. Does that mean I'm actually saved through obedience? No, we are saved through our faith in Jesus Christ, but our faith in Jesus Christ will naturally lead to our actions. Does that make sense? So if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now they're getting irate. Now they're getting frustrated because he's calling them slaves. Wait, we are Abraham's descendants and we have never been slaves to anyone. Well, wait a minute. What about the Egyptians? What about the Assyrians? What about the Babylonians, the Persians? And who's ruling over you? Oh, that's right, the Romans. But you've never been slaves to anyone. Okay. How can you say that we will be set free if we've never been slaves to anyone? They're thinking politically. They're thinking that we have never given our hearts over to anyone else to be our leaders. Even if they took over our land, they have never taken over our hearts. And Jesus is is not even talking in a political manner of slavery. He's talking about a spiritual slavery. That's what he's addressing. Jesus said very truly, and any time we see very truly in, in the book of John, that's translated, amen, amen. It's Jesus' way of highlighting something he doesn't want them to miss. Amen, amen, I tell you. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, then you will be truly free. You will be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, and yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence. And you are doing what you have heard from your father. Well, Abraham's our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did no such things, and yet you are doing the works of your own father. We're not illegitimate children. You're calling us not children of Abraham? We're not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, just straight up called him spawns of Satan. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. How can any of you prove me guilty of sin? 
Can you? Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Can any of you... I'm sorry, I'm just going to repeat that the third time. Never mind. If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God, hears what God says. The reason you don't hear is that you do not belong to God. Ouch. The Jews answered him. Now, you ever feel like... Let's say you're getting in a fight with somebody, even if you love them dearly. You're getting in a fight, you're getting frustrated, and you, the first thing that comes to mind, you just say something hurtful because you're trying to like, t- take a swing at them. Maybe I'm the only one who's never done that. Yeah. <laughs> so the Jews answered him, and right now they're just taking a swing. They're, just, they're angry and they're upset, and so they're swinging at him. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Jesus doesn't even bother to respond to the Samaritan one. That's just ridiculous. But the fact that they're claiming that he's demon-possessed, that perhaps the things he's been doing have been empowered by the enemy, that is truly disconcerting. And so he, re- he replies to that, I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly, amen, amen, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this, they exclaimed, now we know you're demon possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. And yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father, Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim is your God, is the only one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I didn't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He did see it and was glad. You're not not even 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Seriously? And then Jesus responds, very truly, amen, amen, I tell you. Before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, the Jewish leaders get so irate, they pick up stones and they are ready to crush the life out of Jesus right then and there. But why? What was it about that last statement that caused them to want to kill Jesus before he said some really hurtful things? He called them straight up spawns of Satan. Why didn't they try to kill him then? But when he says, before Abraham was born, I am. Well, think back to the moment when God encountered Moses in the burning bush. And here Moses is standing on holy ground. He's taking his sandals off. And God says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses goes, wait a minute. If Pharaoh says, who's the one who sent you? Who do I say sent me? And God said, I am that I am. So you tell him, I am has sent you. I am became the, the most protected name of God. In Hebrew, it's pronounced Yahweh. When we transliterated it into English, we pronounce it Jehovah. This is the name of God. And Jesus straight up says, before Abraham was born, I am. It is the clearest, most direct statement, claim to divinity that Jesus gives. Specifically, the most direct claim that he gives to any of the religious leaders. And it just sets them off. At this point, Jesus is target number one because now not only is he claiming things about them, not only is he attacking their character and suggesting that they have been rejecting God, but now he's claiming divinity for himself. Now, I don't doubt that for many of us, um, this has felt like information overload. 
drinking from a fire hose a little bit. There's been a lot of information that we've talked about. But what I want to do is I want to step back for just a moment and look at these two episodes that we looked at. The first one, Jesus' interaction with the woman caught in adultery. And the second, Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders in these crowds during the Festival of Tabernacles. Because what I find so interesting is the difference in tone. As you can see when I was reading it, there's a definite, distinct difference in the way that Jesus approaches his two audiences. To the woman, he's gentle. He's kind. I mean, this is a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. She deserved, according to the legal law, to be killed for her actions. And yet Jesus was gentle. He was kind. He was grace-filled. And yet, when he interacts with the religious leaders, he's strong and he's hard. And he calls them out. And he says some really hard, really hurtful, really caustic things to them. Why the difference? I would suggest that the difference was the state of their heart. Now, the woman... Well, tell you what, before I even explain that, think about this for a moment. Imagine that you're somebody who has been hiking and you get lost in the woods. And you're lost without a compass, without a cell phone, without any way of finding where you're at. Your water's running out. Your food is gone. It gets dark. You go through an entire night of hearing these noises. You wake up in the morning and you begin to go through another day of trying to figure out where you are and try to find your way out. And now all of a sudden it's the end of the second day. The sun is starting to set. You're out of water completely now and you're beginning to wonder if anybody's ever going to find you at all. And all of a sudden you hear the barking of dogs. And you hear the tramping of feet and you hear people's voices. And all of a sudden people come up over the rise and you know you're safe because there are people there who have been looking for you. How do you respond? You probably run to them, right? Throw your arms around them. Cry unabashedly because you were lost and now you're found. Counter that with me driving in my car I I have a a vague idea of where I'm going, but I'm kind of taking a couple of wrong turns, and at this point I'm not really sure, and my wife leans over and goes, do you think maybe you should stop and ask for directions? Of course not. I know where I'm at. I may not have a clue where I'm at, but I'm not telling her that. And I'm certainly not going to stop and ask for directions. If I'm going to ask for directions, I'll ask Siri, thank you very much. (laughs) What is the difference between these two postures? One recognizes that he's lost or she is lost and desperately in need of help. One is humbled and broken and is receptive to help. The other one, prideful. I got this. I can do this by my own strength. And in fact, I'm not really willing to, to bend a knee and ask for help because that would be too painful to my psyche. That's what's going on here. Jesus speaks to the woman caught in adultery. She's broken. She knows she's sinned. She knows that she deserves death. He could have railed on her for three hours and she would have stood and taken every word and felt like she deserved it. Jesus knows she's broken. And to the broken, he leads with grace. She doesn't need a lecture. She needs a warm embrace of love and say, you are not destroyed. You are not written off because of your mistakes. He doesn't condone it. Now go and leave your life of sin. But even in his saying that, it's not harsh and punitive. It's loving and restorative. But to the Pharisees, to the leaders, these are guys who think they have it all together, think they have all the answers. They don't need somebody to tell them. 
But the reality is they're just as lost as her. They just don't know it. And whereas her heart is broken and humble and teachable, theirs are hardened by pride. They are not teachable in any way, shape, or form. And so Jesus, if he hopes to save them, because remember, what was Jesus' motivation? To seek and save the lost, right? Well, they're just as lost as her. They just don't know it. And in order to be able to speak truth into their life, he has to smack them upside the head with it. He has to break and till the hardened soil of their hearts that has been hardened by pride and self-sufficiency. And so for her, he can lead with grace because she's broken already. With them, he leads with truth. And it's a harsh truth. And it's a painful truth. But it's spoken in love. Because at the end of the day, the goal is the same. Their salvation. The goal is the same. Intimacy with their God. They just have different impediments that are keeping them from it. Make sense? And as I look at these two pictures, the question I have to ask myself is, if Jesus were standing next to me right now, and I was having a conversation with him, what posture would he take with me? Would he throw the loving arms of grace around me and say, I love you? I know, I know that you're aware of that, but I love you. You are my son whom I love. And with you, just watching you grow, watching you stumble towards maturity brings me so much joy and pride. Or would he need to slap me upside the head with a good, stern, loving dollop of truth? Has my heart become so hardened by feelings of adequacy, feelings that I have it together, feeling that I somehow am righteous by my own strength? or that I can figure it out on my own, or that I don't need him, or that I understand him completely, and he's going, you have no, <laughs> you got a lot to learn, buddy. I remember times in my life where I, I thought I had it all together, and I desperately needed a good, hard swat of truth, and God was loving enough to give it to me. And it was painful, and it was restorative. And in hindsight, although in the midst of it, no discipline is comfortable. It's painful. But it will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. For those who are willing to learn from the discipline that God brings. For those of us who are willing to listen to the hard truths that God wants to shine into our lives. That can be the most restorative and most grace-filled thing he can give us. It's the reason why we as parents will discipline our children. Because at the end of the day, if we don't discipline them... They will punish us and others around them. And so the question I have to ask myself, and it's a scary one, is what posture would Jesus take with me if he were standing before me right now? One of grace or one of truth? And the answer to that question doesn't lie with him. It lies with me. And more specifically, it lies in the state of my heart. If I'm humble, if I'm teachable, then he can lead with grace. But if I am prideful and self-sufficient and I am unteachable, then the only way to get through to me is to till the soil of my heart with some good, hard truth. And so as we close today, as we go into a time of worship, I simply want to ask you the same question. Maybe you need to sit with God for a few minutes and just go, God, how do you, how would you need to speak to me? What do I need right now? Do I need grace? 
Or am I in some desperate need for some real hard truth? And if so, God, would you prepare my heart for that? And would you speak truth? Because at the end of the day, I want maturity more than I want comfort. At the end of the day, I want salvation more than I want comfort. At the end of the day, I want intimacy with you more than I want the comfort of this world and the comfort of knowing I can have whatever I want. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are not a one-size-fits-all God. I thank you that you know us intimately. You know every single one of us better than our own parents, better than our own spouses, better than we know ourselves. You know the number of hairs on our head. You know the thoughts on our mind. There is not a single thing that's hidden from you. And you love us. Love us deeper and more passionately and more genuinely than we could ever possibly fathom. And you long for us to be whole and complete. You long for us to be mature. You long for us not only to know you intimately, but then to to be able to be your representatives of hope to others who feel so stinking estranged from you. So God, search us and know us. Know the the thoughts in our minds, the cries of our hearts, both the the hopes and, and dreams and the fears and the failures that have marked us deeply. And God, at the end of the day, lead us, guide us, transform us. If it takes tilling the soil of our hearts so that we'll be receptive to the seeds of truth you want to plant, then till away. Have your way with us, Jesus. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Hey, we're going we're gonna to take offering here.